Dear friends, the topic today is Soviet music in World War II. And it's a very difficult lecture to give at this time. Uh, I'm sure you understand why. And um, in fact, I was thinking of whether it was so inappropriate to do this lecture that I should cancel. But there are two reasons why I didn't want to do it. First of all, our young musicians who are going to be performing to you already learned the lovely piece that you're going to hear at the end. And uh, secondly, I think that um, those who are in charge of Russian propaganda right now would not like me doing this. In fact, it's, uh, it's been criminalized. So, um, and for that reason, I think, uh, it's a good thing to do it. It might be useful to do it. Why is it particularly difficult and, you know, possibly inappropriate to do a lecture like this? Because, uh, well, I have grown up with the cult of the Second World War, and in particular with the Russian part of it, yeah, so which starts in 1941, uh, which we call uh, the Great Patriotic War. So, as you can imagine, children are kind of indoctrinated in this way very early on. In school, you meet the veterans, yeah, you read the stories, and it becomes part of you. And, of course, you also have some kind of family history yeah, that connects you uh, to that time. And I'm sure my British listeners will, will agree that it's the same, or was the same, or has been the same in Britain. Yeah, the spirit of the Blitz is still alive. There are plenty of documentaries that people keep watching about that time. And there is something, a little bit of us, yeah, that's, that is proud of what was done, not by us, yeah, but by people we have some kind of connection with. So I suppose this is this little bit of national pride that, um, that we all had. I'm, I'm talking about the Russians that we all had, and even people who would disagree on all sorts of other political issues, you know, liberals and conservatives, uh, used to agree on one thing, yeah, that, that the, war, the memory of the war was sacred, uh, that we should not forget the victims of the war, and that we should um, always keep that vicarious memory in mind in order for this not to be repeated. But what happened in the last, uh, I don't know, 15, 10 years, this cult of the war uh, was hijacked by the Russian government. Completely, it became more and more grand and vulgarized. Um, the, the 9th of May was, became the holiday that not everyone wanted to celebrate because you would be aligning yourself with the government. Um, it was vulgarized and somehow out of this you know, let's not forget this, lest we forget, um, came out a little nasty slogan. We can do this again, yeah? If, if necessary, we can do this again. It, it seems to be coming from a song, a military song from 1955. We've marched through half of Europe. If necessary, we can repeat. Yeah? We can repeat. This is this little nasty slogan, nasty meme. And... Uh, Unfortunately, this is exactly what, hap what is happening right now. This is exactly the, the propaganda preparation for the events 
that unfolded um, on the 24th of February, exactly four weeks ago, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, because if you were in Russia today, just watching the news um, on TV, you would not be aware that a war is going on. Because it's not a war. It's a special operation. You are shown, um, I think today they showed uh, the horrible destruction in Mariupol, and they said, look what Ukrainian Nazis have done. Not to mention that um, the dehumanization uh, of this propaganda um, reached such a stage that even they, they would not announce the Russian losses. We don't know how many people were lost. On TV, there was not a single announcement of that. So people are living a lie, yeah, living surrounded by this lie, which is unbearable. And uh, the memory of World War II, that pride is now gone for us. It's not possible for me to do what I was planning to do, to play some popular songs, because these popular songs have been sullied by this um, hijacking of the, of the war cult. And uh, what I've decided to do, I've decided to connect it to the present events. Um, and this is why I've chosen this image, which I think, you know, does create a connection between the two wars but a positive one. Here you see a, a woman who went through the siege of Leningrad. Obviously, she must have been quite young at the time, who is being arrested for protesting during the war. This is a photograph taken in the, in the last few weeks. And after having been arrested and released, she's come out again with, with a different placard that she's herself painted, and uh, she will not be stopped. So, this image is the only thing to hold on to, in a sense, for me. So, I will be begin from the events before 1941, yes, from 1939, because that part of World War II usually wasn't part of the cult. Yeah? In fact, it was forgotten. In fact, it wasn't written down in history books, and we did not study it in school. Uh, so what was forgotten was the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, yeah, which meant that Russia, just before the beginning of uh, World War II, signed a pact of non-aggression with Germany, with Hitler. And, and this photograph um, was in all the papers. People... Uh, now, imagine that for, for many years, and not just weeks and months, uh, people were told that, uh, you know, Nazism is bad, that it's terrible. Yeah, there was denunciation of fascism in every single newspaper. And then suddenly, yeah, you sign a pact of non-agreement. And uh, what's worse, uh, you actually cross the Polish border. border. Uh, so... I looked at some of the diaries which were written at the time yeah, by Russians. One of them says, in Pravda today, one of the reports from Western Ukraine styled the Poles as the hateful enemy. 
but it was only a month and a half ago that we were offering this hateful enemy our military help. Such is politics. Thankfully, people have short memories, and such word spinning does not lodge in their conscious minds. Yeah, so he's being sarcastic, and I'm sure we're all familiar with this short memory. Yeah, so people suddenly had to rethink all this and find justification in being friends with Hitler. Some of them did, some of them didn't do, but it was, it was much easier to do it because, remember, in those days, there wasn't even internet. Yeah, there wasn't any alternative source of information. So they just had to, uh, you know, there were only rumors and, and newspapers, nothing else. So... As our friendship with Hitler developed, um, various things were done uh, in, in culture yeah, to promote something that Hitler liked, for example, Wagner. Here's another excerpt of the same diarist. We listened to a radio broadcast of Die Walküre for Germany with singers from the Bolshoi. It was prefaced with a speech by Sergei Eisenstein, who delivered it in German. He will be producing the Valkyrie at the Bolshoi next season. You can see a picture of him uh, dealing with the, with the Valkyries. It is known to be Hitler's favorite opera, so this is a kind of political courtesy. In Berlin, they staged Ivan Susanin and published Quiet Flows the Dawn. So all these things uh, were seen as shocking to start with, but then people got used to the idea. And... Uh, in a strange way, because the attention of the, the government was so much on international affairs, um, the domestic situation got a little bit more relaxed. In, in fact, culture uh, didn't, didn't have the same restrictions that, as it would have had in 19, 1936 or 1937. Uh, for example, Shostakovich's Sixth Symphony, um, got a mixed reception, but the, the castigation of it, the criticism of it, was nothing like what he experienced in 1936. Uh, there was Prokofiev's opera, Simeon Karko, which was a very kind of complex, sophisticated piece. Uh, and next to that, there was a, a work by Tikhon Hrenikov, which is called Into the Storm. There was a debate of which one was better, which was not so good, and it actually turns out that the professional communi community favored Prokofiev over Hrenikov. Yeah, so it's exactly the opposite to what would have happened in 1936. So generally, yeah, for culture, the climate was seemed to be more liberal, even though, of course, the same opera had to be censored, the German invaders there had to be replaced by Austrians for it even to reach the stage. Yeah, and Eisenstein's film, Alexander Nevsky, also was, was shelved yeah, because there were these medieval Teutonic knights invading Russia there. Uh, of course, the, another thing that was happening that um, Stalin continued to give a lot of carrots out, yeah? so not just sticks, but carrots to, um, to the workers of culture, so to speak. And they received orders and honorary titles, and uh, there was a new thing now, which is called the Stalin Prize, uh, introduced in, in 1940. The first of them were awarded just before the war. And that was a fantastical amount of money. 
to receive for a first class uh, winner. It was 100,000 rubles, and the rubles were a bit weightier than they are now. Uh, and uh, you could buy something like six automobiles with it. Uh, yeah, so you, you can imagine, for an ordinary worker, it's, it's an unthinkable, unimaginable amount of money. And uh, these prizes were given um, not just to people, yes, yeah, a lifetime achievement, but for, for particular pieces. And amazingly, when you look at music, you can see that it wasn't the Stalin cantatas that won the first class prize, but pieces that you wouldn't expect. Yeah, the piano quintet by Shostakovich. Yeah, it's a chamber work. Uh, it's a very um, sophisticated work again. Uh, Miskovsky Symphony Number no. One. Uh, nothing particularly grand about it. It's a very lyrical symphony. It even has a, a quiet ending. Um, I suppose you know the oratorio on the Kulikova field. But still, even even that is is a kind of big national oratorio, rousing, uh, glor glorifying Russian victory uh, in the 14th century, but uh, not on Soviet topic. Yeah, so why is this happening? Because at that point, yeah, the, the Stalin Prize Committee, which consisted of professionals, uh, was not overseen by Molotov. Yeah, Molotov was flying to Berlin. Yeah, he had no time for the Stalin Prize Committee. So this is how, um, how this, this happened. But we can't imagine that at that time, uh, people, uh, culture workers, composers, were entirely free. And one interesting um, piece that I would like to introduce here is Shostakovich's Suite on Finnish Themes. Now, this is another uh, forgotten war, or at least you know, the, the war that Russians would like to forget. It's the Finnish war, the Winter War which in many ways very much reminds me of what, ha what is happening now. Yeah, so um, Russians was, were hoping for a blitzkrieg. Yeah, they thought it would be over by Stalin's birthday, yeah, so within three weeks. But uh, they got stuck there. And uh, amazingly, yeah, where is Soviet Union, where is Finland? They lost it. Uh, they lost it. Um, I mean, they, they still got a little bit of territory out of that, but it was a kind of shameful episode that uh, they pre preferred not to remember. And the regime change that they wanted to institute there um, to replace um, the government with a kind of social democratic or pro-communist government also did not happen. So Shostakovich was given a commission which he obviously could not refuse. The commission was for arrangements of Finnish folk songs, and it was given to him at the very end of November of uh, 1939, am I right? Or 40? Yeah, 1940? Um, no, uh, yeah, here, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've, got, I've got confused, yeah? But, um, at, at that moment, yeah, just before the invasion started. And uh, Shostakovich obviously could not say no because the commission, commission was from the political um, department of the Leningrad military district. Yeah, so it basically was a military commission. And I, yeah, I, I think you can imagine that it was very difficult to say no. 
And would he have even imagined what purpose these songs would, uh, would serve? We don't know very much about this. We only know that they were probably intended for a celebration, yeah, for a celebration of victory. And when you hear them, they are completely innocuous and rather lovely. Yes, so an innocuous piece. What happened to it afterwards? Shostakovich completely buried it in his papers. Yes, so obviously he was so ashamed of this piece, he never wanted to put his name to it uh, and to promote it. It was only discovered after his, uh, his death and performed. And actually, uh, you know, because of the, the time that had passed since, um, since the war, it's been performed in Finland. Um, it seems to be, um, I mean, again, ironically, it was performed, I think, for Putin's visit to Finland yeah, so there's lots of ironies. Yeah, an innocuous piece, but with a, with a dark uh, lining to it. So let's now fast forward to 22nd of June 1941, when the Nazis invaded the territory of the Soviet Union. I like this quote from Pasternak's novel, Dr. Zhivago, even though it seems to be um, sort of counterintuitive. And when the war broke out, its real horrors, its real dangers, its menace of real death were a blessing compared to the inhuman power of the lie, a relief because it broke a spell of the dead letter. When the war broke out, people knew what was true and what was false. They knew which side they were on. And it saved some uh, of you know, those who had been arrested already before the war and completely lost faith yeah, in, the, in the whole system and in the regime. It was very difficult for them to live after that yeah, because they were basically understanding that they were living a lie. And then suddenly this was lifted. Uh, and you, you can certainly see this in people's diaries. People were actually energized by this new authenticity authenticity of emotion, of, ex of expression that they found. Of course, Shostakovich's Symphony Number no. 7 became very early a symbol of the war. And various things that it introduced um, Shows, show, show us the new license of war. What, do, what does this mean? What do I mean by this um, term? I mean that more things were permitted, more musical idioms were permitted now within socialist realism. If they represented the enemy, yeah, or if they represented the suffering of the Russians under the enemy. So you could write a tragic piece and be, be justified. You could write a piece which had this very high emotional temperature to be expressionist, yeah, to portray horrors, and that would be justified. 
You could use the so-called grotesque style, yeah, the kind of mocking style that was always frowned upon within socialist realism because what are you being ironic about? What are you mocking? Yeah? Well, here you could mock the enemy. So that also now became acceptable. And of course, the very famous moment in Shostakovich's Seventh Symphony is the moment, the beginning of the invasion and how we, we suddenly change from peaceful sounds to the sound of a side drum. Very, very quiet, very far away. And then you hear a little tune, a banal tune, a tune that might sort of refer to one of the numbers in, in an, an operetta that Hitler particularly liked, The Merry Widow, but it's an easy, yeah, easygoing, light-hearted tune which has a sinister meaning. Yeah? And then it grows and grows, it approaches you, it gets closer and closer, it becomes deafening yeah, the, in the sound of the orchestra. So it becomes the music of the war. Yeah? So it's a kind of grotesque portrayal of the war, a war portraying it through a banal tune. It was something that nobody quite had done before that. So it was a very powerful and new thing to do. So I want you to hear that, that just that moment when you hear that the lovely violin solo, the end of the peaceful life, and then the beginning of the war. to show you uh, where I think this idea comes from. I think it's a very cinematic idea, and I think it comes from the film called Chapaev. Yeah, it's a film about the Civil War, uh, which comes from 1934, and every single citizen of the Soviet Union would have watched that film. Yeah, it was basically the most popular film at the time. So if you listen to the soundtrack, you will hear the birds singing, and then you will hear the drum.
this idea yeah, of, of this really cinematic idea, which I think Shostakovich uh, makes into a musical idea. I, I'm not going to uh, tell you the whole story of the Seventh Symphony, which is very well known, yeah, and how it was used as a weapon in the war and then you know, picked up by the Allies, flown to America, and so on. You, know, you probably know all that. Uh, I want to show you how this symphony influenced um, the rest of the Soviet music productions. Everyone started producing war symphonies. It really became the dominant genre. Um, or, uh, on the other hand, we can say almost every work that was produced at this time would have received a kind of explanation, yeah, a war program, even if the program was not written in anywhere. Yeah? So any work written during the war was automatically uh, received yeah, and explained in terms of a war program. And uh, composers who were creating these symphonies uh, did... did that in, in their own ways. For example, you know, Khachaturian, we, we talked about him. Yeah, he had this very vivid national style, yeah, oriental style, I guess. Um, and he repurposed this style to create a tragic symphony, to create tragic music of idioms that were, uh, had been previously used only for kind of entertainment, yeah, dance, uh, enjoyment. That this was the, the normal kind of application of that style. Uh, and now it, it sounds all completely different. So I will play you a little episode where you hear the very sort of typical percussion patterns um, yeah, from Transcaucasian re uh, region, which um, would normally be used for dance, yeah, but here they are completely rethought of, yeah, rethought, repurposed to uh, represent um, tragedy, unfolding tragedy and crisis. <laughs> On the other hand, um, he also cr created a, a symphony which was read in the context of the war program, War Narrative, which is number five. And he, in the scherzo, um, reused the material that uh, was supposed to go into his Romeo and Juliet ballet, yeah, but wasn't needed there. So he actually reused it and uh, elaborated in such a way that it uh, turned out to be even more sinister than some of Shostakovich's scherzos. So here is this very famous moment, the writing is for the brass, it's, it's sort of incredible, it's like a huge machine yeah, that's starting out and again advancing you, um, advancing towards you. Thank you. 
And uh, every slow movement in, in such a symphony would be read as a requiem. Yeah? And again, would usually have this huge climax. And again, in uh, symphony number no. five, uh, it's particularly pronounced. Yeah? So the lyrical melody that comes after seems to be kind of damaged, affected by that. But the main war symphony, and I would claim that this is even more important possibly than the seventh, is Shostakovich's eighth symphony. Because this is really as far as the license of war uh, would go. This is where it hits the limit. Because there was a huge debate around this, this symphony. Uh, if you listen to it, you will probably say, well, this is not a symphony that you feel has been restricted by any censorship, it really feels completely authentic to me. And the fact that Shostakovich wrote it in the middle of the war is, is of course, uh, amazing yeah, and shows what was possible. But once it was written, then the debate started because, of course, it was nominated also for a Stalin Prize and they debated over it for two whole years, yeah, because actually the first time the prize wasn't awarded and then it was transferred to the next year as well. And here are some of the things that were said. So this is Alexander Goldenweiser who says, there are no purely musical faults in this work, but there are ideological shortcomings and this work is extremely pessimistic. Yeah, so again, it gives the impression that it portrays with huge power all the darkness and pain that undoubtedly have a place in our experiences. Yeah, but we want to have something that rises above it. Uh, sculptor Vera Mohina uh, complained that the symphony was too difficult to listen to, that you might even think, well, when is it going to end? And uh, was uh, frustrated by its fearsome complexity, as she said, that she couldn't take it home and her memory with it. 
And yet she uh, selected two movements. She calls them the two marches. This is movements two and three, which she thought were quite exceptional and very direct in their power of expression. Well, this is what she means. This is one of these marches. It's not quite a march. It's a kind of fierce toccata. probably imagine that people actually heard the sounds of war itself, yeah, the, the actual soundscape of war in, this, in these scores, both in Prokofiev and in Shostakovich. And uh, the end which perplexed everyone, yeah, the, it, while in the Seventh Symphony, Shostakovich really tried to imagine the victory. Yeah, so it's a grand, grand peroration at the end. At the end of the Eighth Symphony, although it's in C major, uh, the end is very quiet. So imagine you've been sitting for an hour yeah, listening to this very complex symphony, and this is what you're rewarded by, yeah, with a few notes in the pizzicato. Yeah, so that's quite disappointing, I guess. So they were taking issues with that. So finally, when the minister, Hrabchenka, speaks about the work, he says that the, the problem is that it's not really accessible to ordinary cultured listeners. Um, uh, you know, secondly, it's too individualistic, too individual, and thirdly, uh, it's, it's too pessimistic. And then he starts, you know, uh, relating this to what Shostakovich had done before. And of course, you know that Shostakovich had been denounced for formalism. So he says he's revisiting the past. And when Hrabchenko is writing to Stalin and Molotov about this piece, he says, uh, already puts it in much more um, harsher lang language, yeah, that it's... Uh, 
uh, Shostakovich repeats here the same formalist errors that had typified some of his earlier works. So uh, the symphony was supposed to get the second class prize, yeah, so half the money. But then they came, uh, came back to it next year, and Shostakovich had already written two more works. He wrote a second quartet and also a trio. And they thought, okay, well, maybe we can then add the trio to it, and then maybe we can raise it to first class, because to give Shostakovich a second class prize is a bit embarrassing. But then um, there, was, there was this audition at the Stalin Prize Committee, and Shostakovich must have recommended one of his disciples, a, a wonderful young composer who's called Mitislav Weinberg, so can you imagine the committee listening to the Weinberg Quintet, then to Shostakovich's second quartet, and then to Shostakovich's trio? Now try doing this at home. Yeah, these are three extremely heavy works, yeah, and very demanding emotionally, very demanding from the listeners. So uh, Weinberg Quintet is a wonderful piece. Um, Weinberg, of course, was, was a, has a, 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 an amazing biographical story you know, because he, he was in Poland where the war broke out and he walked to the border with the Soviet Union. Yeah, so he crossed the border as a refugee, like, just like people are doing now, yeah, walking like 80 kilometers or something through Ukraine to get to the border. But he was wa walking the other direction. So uh, he crossed the border into Soviet Union. And uh, amazingly, he wasn't sent in the, the Gulag, at least not straight away, um, and uh, was allowed to have a career. Uh, all his family perished. The rest of them perished. So Shostakovich was, was incredibly impressed by the story and also by the talent of, of Weinberg and promoted him a lot. And it, it's an amazing work. I'll just play a, a few passages to you. playing, yeah, amazing piano playing as well. Uh, and of course, uh, Weinberg, um, being Jewish, uh, composed quite a lot of music in the Jewish idiom, and actually Shostakovich, I think, learned from him. Uh, and it, it is, it seems, Shostakovich that is often more influenced by Weinberg than Weinberg by Shostakovich. This is quite an amazing thing, but this is one of the um, moments in the slow moment where you can see even yeah these repeated notes, this kind of re recitation or cantillation.
And if you want to see the very ending of the quartet, uh, quintet, sorry, I, I told you about the endings, yeah, quiet endings and how they were not a good thing in the socialist realism. You, he actually ends with an empty bar at the end. There's actually nothing. There's a bar of silence at the end, which is uh, it's a very symbolic. So, um, when all that was performed, yeah, so that was probably about two hours of music, uh, an architect uh, who was a member of the Stalin Prize Committee really could not contain himself any longer. And he started yeah, swearing at Weinberg. Well, Weinberg wasn't there, but anyway, some youth brings us a piece of utterly unbearable rubbish. It's an outrageous thing, the most incredible cacophony, just a lot of caterwauling. Uh, there were some attempts at technical innovation. Now you do it with a finger, now with a bow. We were laughing about it, that maybe he should get something attached to his back so he could drum on it. How does this come about? In this regard, I must raise an issue of principle here. The Stalin Prize Committee has a certain criterion of evaluation. It approaches every work from the point of view of socialist realism. If we were offered some kind of futurist daub as a painting, we would not even look at it. If we were offered some kind of zaum, you know, transrational poetry, we would not give it a hearing. So why in music do we have to listen to these formalist scams? Yeah, and he continues that Shostakovich, yeah, one is a, um, a teacher, the other a pupil, but it's unbearable cacophony again in the quartet, and the most, it, it's the most you can do just to stay put in your seat. And we keep saying Shostakovich is a genius, a genius, a genius. We give it our encouragement. And this quartet, this incredible chaos and cacophony, after it, we heard some rounded phrases in the trio, and people said it was very good. But if you take it by itself, there is nothing particularly good about it. Yeah, and so on, so on. So after that, yeah, the, the discussion was swayed in the other way. Nobody could quite defend Shostakovich with the same ardor as before. But the trio, uh, yeah, so the Eighth Symphony, basically, uh, this is, this is an, an interesting quote about the Eighth Symphony. He says, when the Eighth Symphony is performed, there's a lot of cacophony there, but people hear something in it that reminds them of the cannons firing and the Katyusha rocket launchers squealing while in the quartet, and the trio, this justification, is lacking. Yeah, so this is, this is the license, license of war spelled out for you. So, yeah, so you can do various things. If, uh, if they have to do with the war, but if there's no justification, it's just formalism. Um, well, the trio actually got the award yeah, instead of the symphony, uh, second class award, and it's amazing too, because it's, um, it has this Jewish material and this very, very famous kind of Jewish dance, which is incredibly sinister, and you know, he's, he's, he's now has been described as the dance of death. And the trio does seem to refer uh, to, um, to the Holocaust already because there were the first um, reports coming out in 1944, yeah, from the, when the Soviet forces liberated uh, these parts of Poland and discovered these horrors of Majdanek. So the, this is very um, likely to have something to do with that. So this is the finale of Shostakovich's trio.
this is what they liked about this piece, because it's more, it's an easy music, yeah, it's a kind of foot-tapping music for them. They did not ever mention that this was Jewish in the discussion, this didn't come up. Um, and basically they awarded the trio because it was more accessible. Yeah? So in the context we think that this is a, word, a strange award, yeah? but that's, that's how it happened. How was the victory celebrated? Of course, Shostakovich having written the seventh and the eighth, the ninth was expected out of him yeah, to celebrate the victory. And he started writing a huge symphony with a choir, yeah, and you know, the ninth symphony is a very dangerous number. Composers usually die after writing one. So he got cold feet and he abandoned his sketches and he presented something entirely different. symphony. Yeah, it's a neoclassical symphony. It's very light. And unfortunately, the TAS, yeah, the information agency, published a notice about it that this is Shostakovich's ninth symphony will be in celebration of our great victory. Yeah, so you can imagine in that context it was, it was seen by many as a kind of provocation and something embarrassing. Lots of Shostakovich's supporters were trying to cover up for it and saying well, it expresses the joy and relief yeah, the feeling of Soviet people after the end of the war. But uh, that didn't wash. Yeah. So um, in the end, when it was again nominated for a Stalin Prize, this was the report by the Politburo Commission, which basically dismissing it. Yeah, it's not of significant artistic value, and uh, it's it's not very successful. Uh, so if that wasn't a good enough commemoration because it was too light and not too grand enough, uh, Prokofiev's ode for the end of the war failed. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum because it was too grandiose.
So uh, to have eight harps and four pianos and a huge number of double basses yeah, and a huge number of brass was seen as excessive, extravagant, decadent, again, you know, going beyond socialist realism. So that wasn't a good victory piece either. And indeed, when you think of it, there wasn't a, a completely approved, universally approved victory symphony written. And maybe that had to do uh, with the fact that Already from 1948, even the day of victory, the 9th of May, wasn't celebrated anymore. Um, it wasn't a holiday anymore. Yeah, so Stalin actually didn't want to celebrate it. He didn't want to create the cult of war. He wanted people to forget about it. So the uh, returning prisoners of war were sent to the Gulag. The archives remained closed. And uh, um, the disabled veterans were, were removed far, far away you know, from the central streets of Moscow. So the cult only then reemerged in the 60s. And my final section is the limits of commemoration. Yeah, so for a very long time after the war, the theme of commemorating the victims uh, was very important. But there were limits, yeah, and... Uh, various re prescriptions you know, of how to commemorate the victims and who you could commemorate. I will tell you one little story without playing the piece because there's simply no recording of this piece, but I'm wondering whether somebody will make one one day. So this is another Shostakovich disciple, um, Yuri Levitin, quartet number seven, and uh, his, his piece um, was dedicated to a Ukrainian partisan, yeah, the, uh, who fought against the Nazis. Uh, her name was Lale Ubi-Wolk. And the moment that the committee heard that there was a dedication to her, they started worried, worrying about this. This was already in 1952. They said, or, you know, is there a scene of execution in this quartet? Well, that's too horrible. We don't want to to have that. What about these Ukrainian folk songs that you use? Are you sure that they're entirely appropriate Ukrainian songs? Why are you using old songs and not, uh, um, not new Soviet Ukrainian songs? So uh, the piece was completely you know, rejected for this reason. And it was considered uh, false um, uh, and uh, kind of inauthentic. Uh, even though Levitin actually came from the same city in which uh, Ubi Wolk was um, born and in which he, she, she died, she was executed. So it was a kind of his local um, commemoration, but it wasn't accepted. And another case um, of that was a symphony which is, uh, was written by Dmitry Klebana for Dmitro Klebaniev, uh, a Kharkiv compo composer, yeah, Ukrainian Jewish composer, uh, which was dedicated to the martyrs of Babi Yar or Babin Yar. You probably know about much more famous symphony, Ashostakovich's 13th, which comes from much later. But this one is not very well known because it was um, rejected straight after the, the premiere. Mm, uh, 
and I will, I will read out what they said. It says, grave mistakes have been found in the work of some composers. Thus, for example, the Kharkov composer Klebanov wrote a Babi Yar symphony that is steeped in the spirit of bourgeois nationalism and cosmopolitanism and founded on old Jewish religious songs. Rituals of ancient Palestine, Israel's lament, intonations of the synagogal chant, such are the sources which inspired Klebanov to write this anti-patriotic symphony. And this uh, very much, um, very sort of contemporary language, yeah, anti-patriotic. This is something that we hear very much right now from the Russian media. Uh, You might have recognized Malerian style, yeah, which of course Mahler, yeah, as a Jewish composer, is it's not, yeah, without a reason that Klebanov is using this idiom here. And later on, he does another interesting thing. He quotes from Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, but instead of the recitative and the finale, um, he uses Jewish cantillation again. Yeah, so. Um, you can see how this, this, this music is full of symbols. It damaged his career quite, quite substantially. And now, when I think back to the case of Levitin, having sort of discovered this um, denunciation of Klebanov, I think that there, there was probably also an unspoken worry about Ukrainian bourgeois nationalism, yeah, that you could not commemorate someone Ukrainian in a specifically Ukrainian way. This was not allowed. You could not uh, commemorate uh, the Jews separately from the Soviet people. You could not commem commemorate Ukrainians separately from the Soviet people. Yeah, so this is very much something that, again, connects it to, um, to the rhetoric of our time, to today. These are the roots of what we, we have seen um, growing uh, in, in recent decades. Well, uh, now to the piece that our trio is going to play to you, um, a trio by Mikhail Gnesin. A very rarely performed piece, and I will only say a very few words about it. Uh, Gnesin is an interesting composer. He was a pioneer of the Soviet style in the 1920s. He created one of the first pieces, Symphonic Monument, which was actually on a Soviet theme. He, he was also a pioneer of Jewish national music. He, he wrote a lot of music, which was specifically trying to discover how to do, uh, how to create uh, music out of um, various songs and chants. 
And uh, to, to the extent that he was the only composer, um, only of Soviet composers, who was explicitly banned by the Nazis. Yeah, so that's an interesting fact. Gnesian was also an extremely uh, courageous man. On three occasions, at least, in 1932, in 1936, and 1948, he actually stood up for his friends. He stood up against charges of formalism, which was a very dangerous thing to do. So I have a huge respect for him. But this is... Uh, a piece which uh, is written in commemoration of his son. He wrote it in, during his evacuation in Tashkent. His son, who was a 35-year-old um, Fabi, his name was, uh, arrived in, in Tashkent before Gnesin and died in the hospital uh, before his father arrived. Uh, and uh, Gnesin wanted to write a piece uh, in his memory, but uh, he created a, a more general dedication in memory of our perished children. And he also wrote a little note which was supposed to be passed around when the piece was performed. The composer has strived to express our shared pain of our children, students, and young friends who perished in battles for our fatherland or who were tortured by the enemy in occupied cities. But he also seeks to stir up in his listeners' memory an image of these young people as living beings in their youth, from childhood dreams and play, from youthful unrequited love and aspirations to the earliest real achievements of adulthood and then their sudden deaths. The sections of the trio linked to the poetry of children's suffering are built on a theme that was composed at the age of eight by the son of the composer, Fabi, now deceased. This piece is, doesn't sound particularly Jewish, although it does contain a Yiddish theme at the very start in the pizzicato, but it's it not explicit, explicitly written in the Jewish idiom. Nevertheless, later on, it has acquired new meanings as a Holocaust memorial piece. But today, I think this dedication can stand, and we don't have to add anything to it and dedicate it to those innocent victims, the victims of the war that is going on now. And I will invite now onto the stage our very young performers. They're all undergraduates from Cambridge University, uh, Jacqueline Secchi, William Harris, and Dallas Thomas. Uh, two of them are from Clare College, and one of them is from Downing College. Please give them very well.
But I just would like to say, first of all, thank you to the performers who were tremendous. I thought it was a deeply moving 
a piece of music, but also thank you to you for persevering this evening in these awful circumstances. And I just want to read out two of the many comments online. Uh, one person said, thank you so much for deciding to do your talk. Music is a universal language. And the second one I just quickly like to read says, 20th century Russian music is part of European cultural history as much as Shakespeare, Wagner, or Dante. Professor Frolova Walker does not need to make any apologies for any crude mis misuse by a temporary dictator. So thank you.